Hello, 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 good day, and welcome to another episode of After School History. I am, as always, your genial host, Anthony J. Ashitino. And today I would like to continue with our discussion of, uh, of real turning points in World War II. Now, <clears throat> there is usually a major emphasis, and, and rightly so, I think, on... I feel, rather, on what happened in Russia. Um, The fact of the matter is that Germany was by far uh, the most dangerous of the Axis powers. I mean, it wasn't even close. Uh, The German military from uh, the army, the Heer, to the Luftwaffe, the Kriegsmarine, the the German military was uh, second to none. And in fact, in many cases... You know, got beat because unfortunately for them, fortunately for everyone else in the civilized world, unfortunately for them, they just got too overstretched and they could not produce enough in the long run. Um, that's not to say that they were, they were so superior and everyone else wasn't. I mean, in some cases, yes, the, the Germans had superior weapons and superior technology, uh, but the Allies quickly countered them, and you know we'll talk about this later when we talk about the closing stages of the war. Uh, but the Soviets were able to develop aircraft that could keep up with the best of the German aircraft, and they produced a lot more of them. Tanks, which were superior to many of the German tanks, uh, and and more of them, a lot more of them. Uh, you know, the Allies on the Western Front, you know, the United States and Great Britain developed aircraft uh, bombers. Fighters. I mean, the P-51 Mustang uh, was probably the best fighter overall uh, in World War II. Uh, you can make arguments with me, and I'm happy to entertain them. You know, I welcome them. Come on, you know, tell me. Be like, no, no, no. It was Messerschmitt, you know, BF-109. That was, you know, superior. The, the ME-262, had they not changed it. Anyway, I, I digress. My point is that <clears throat> 9 out of 10 German soldiers who died during the Second World War died or became casualties on the Eastern Front. The war between Germany and the Soviet Union was, without question, uh, the major factor in World War II turning out the way it did. However, at the same time as that was going on, the United States was dealing with a threat in Eastern Asia. And um, since the French had already been knocked out by the Germans, they were out of the war, so they really couldn't do anything. And the British, very quickly after things got underway, got knocked out. It was kind of up to the United States to deal with Japanese aggression in East Asia. And, and the real question today is, you know, what did Japan want? And as I said, if you listen to my previous uh, podcast, this whole thing of, well, you know, Japanese wanted to come as far as they could have, they could have rolled as far as Chicago before anyone could stop them. There was never ever any interest in the Japanese on conquering the U.S. mainland. The, what the Japanese wanted was they wanted to have a hegemony in East Asia. They wanted to be acknowledged as the superior power in the Pacific. They wanted an economic sphere which would stretch throughout all of East Asia, would basically take in uh, what is today the Korean Peninsula, both North and South Korea, Uh, mainland China, as far in as they wanted, Southeast Asia, and the islands in South Asia, you know, many of which were replete with, they had lots of 
there was petroleum, there was rubber, um, you know, there was there was grain inland in China and stuff. You know, Japan, uh, you know, is a series of islands. Uh, if you don't know that, you know, learn some geography, please. But Japan always had problems with issues feeding their own people and producing enough raw materials to back their exploits. And they saw this as the opportunity to do it. <clears throat> and they really did not think, as I mentioned before, I know it's difficult for people to understand it now, the Japanese did not think that the United States would really make too much out of their desire to um, expand. Uh, you know, even with Pearl Harbor, they really felt, and I know, again, it's crazy because we know how things turned out. But that's the crazy thing about, you know, everything in the past. And one of the great things about teaching history is you always get to be like, yeah, this is what this person thought. That's what that country thought. And it turned out to be a little different. The Japanese honestly felt that the attack on Pearl Harbor, the destruction of the American Pacific Fleet, would result in the United States basically negotiating with them. Uh, and in the meantime, they would sweep over and take a lot of different uh, places that they wanted, the Philippines being another major, major place. Now, they were 100% wrong, but they didn't see it that way. And if you really feel that that's how the United States is going to reply, then what happened at Pearl Harbor and what happened subsequently makes sense. Now, it didn't. So the Japanese, December 7, 1941, attacked Pearl Harbor, of course... The major problem, well, two major problems. Number one, the carriers, the American carriers, are not there. Now, this has given rise to one of the great conspiracy theories. Oh, and I love talking, as you know, if you've listened to any of my podcasts in the past, I love talking conspiracy theories, okay? I don't believe any of them, because none of them are true, uh, but I, I love talking about them. So the idea was that the Americans knew this is what happens, that FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the president of the United States at the time, he knew the Japanese were going to attack Pearl Harbor, so he intentionally sent the carriers out, and he needed a way to get the U.S. into the war, because before Pearl Harbor, American opinion was solidly, I forget this percentage, it was like 90% was like, we don't want to get involved in a stupid war in Europe. And then what happened was the Japanese attacked us, and all of a sudden everyone was like, why are we not in this war yet? Why have we not kicked everyone's rear ends? So, uh, this is absolute malarkey, as I'm fond of saying. Uh, the, the Japanese <clears throat> were thought, as I said in a previous podcast, so I'll make it quick, the bottom line is that U.S. intelligence figured that the Japanese would probably attack, but if they attacked, they would attack the Philippines. Now, they did attack the Philippines afterwards, okay? But they just did not think the Japanese had it in them to be as aggressive and as bold as they were. This is something, again, the, the Imperial Russian Navy made a major problem with in their war with Japan, the United States, and it, what it comes down to is, quite frankly, racism, okay? It's just, it's plain and simple. This belief that East Asians could not hold their own toe-to-toe -to -toe with the, quote, Westerners, okay? Um, and unfortunately, 
for the Westerners, this has cost them thousands and thousands and thousands of lives. Uh, so the Japanese did attack Pearl Harbor. Uh, the two things, the carriers were out, and also they did not destroy any of the the oil reserves that were on the islands. Uh, they, they did not hit a lot of the areas. They did not put most of the major areas out of commission. And so even though it was a, it was a terrible loss of life uh, for the United States Navy, uh, and it was a temporary terrible loss of main battleships, it wasn't as devastating as it seemed. And why? Because we were seeing something in World War II uh, that we, especially in the Pacific was where it was really noticed, air power. Air power was rapidly becoming the dominant issue. It was becoming clear that whoever owned the skies dominated the battlefield. Now, in World War I, yes, there was definitely uh, time periods where air power made uh, a bit of a difference, but never, never as much as it did like in World War II. And so the issue was that battleships, battleships had seen their heyday. Okay, the Battle of Jutland which I gave a fantastic presentation to in Miss Wyluda's class when I was in eighth grade. I think I only put about three quarters of the class to sleep. I used this brand new thing when I was in eighth grade. This is <laughs> to date myself. Uh, the World Wide Web. There was this new thing out there called the Internet. And I went online and I researched uh, the Battle of Jutland online. I'm, I'm making the quotes thing with my fingers. So anyway... <clears throat> That was the heyday of the battleship, the battle cruiser, the dreadnoughts. Um, what would happen shortly afterwards, in 1942, there were two major battles. Now, 41 was Pearl Harbor. U.S. gets knocked out. The Philippines get attacked. They get occupied. MacArthur leaves the Philippines. The, you know, I, I shall return. Uh, MacArthur, fascinating character. I'd love to do a podcast. I, I could do one just on him. And and it could it could be a couple of hours, but anyway, uh, Philippines they fight very hard, but the American soldiers are forced to surrender. The Japanese do not treat surrendered soldiers, and this is nothing for my listeners in Japan. This is no affront. I'm not saying this to the, you know to put the smack down, but the reality is, you guys did treat soldiers who surrendered terribly. Now I know a lot of this is because of the whole idea that you know surrender is dishonorable and as we'll we'll see later on in another podcast uh Japanese soldiers almost never surrendered. I mean there was fight to the death or there was, you know, bonsai charges, jump off a cliff, pull the pin on a grenade. It, it, there was not surrender, which made them extremely dangerous foes because they were not surrendering, but at the same time the terrible waste of life and the waste of good soldiers that could have, you know, had they not, instead of surrendering, had they retreated, gone to other places and, and continued to fight on. Well, you know, that, that it's neither here nor there at this point. So anyway, what happened later on in May of 1942 was a major battle called the Battle of the Coral Sea. Now, this doesn't get a lot of attention as a lot of people skip from, okay, we did Pearl Harbor, and in normal history classes, they jump right in there like, all right, now we're going to do Midway. And don't get me wrong, Midway is the turning point in the Pacific. But the Battle of the Coral Sea is extremely significant for a few reasons. The Japanese are expanding to the south, and they're trying to basically 
they're they're on a run, and it's like anything else. When you when when the dice are hot, you keep playing, right? You keep throwing them. And the Japanese were doing extremely well, and they were mopping the floor with everyone, and so they continued to go on the offensive. The problem was that the Japanese, uh, they didn't have the numbers to really be able to exploit things the way they wanted to. By numbers, I mean the number of ships. They didn't have the number of, of pilots. Um, the Japanese couldn't easily replace pilots. They certainly could not easy, easily replace any ships that they lost. They did replace some ships over time, but compared to the United States, which was like, oh, we just lost, you know, five major ships in this one battle. No problem. We'll have seven out by the end of the week. So the Japanese continued with the attack. And one of the fascinating things, and I found this out not too, too long ago, was that the Japanese did not, uh, their soldiers were basically sent into battle with instructions to live off the land. Their logistics, as long as they continued to win and, and conquer new territories, they were golden because they were living off the land. But if they didn't, they didn't have supplies. I mean, I was reading somewhere, God, I forget exactly where it was, that so many Japanese soldiers in the, the South Pacific campaigns, I think more of them died from starvation than from enemy fire or from, from you know, the, the effects of starvation. I mean, it was quite terrible because they were basically just keep going, you know, and conquer the land or or die trying, you know. Uh, and that was that. And it's just like, my God, you know. So the Battle of the Coral Sea, this is extremely important for two reasons. Number one, <clears throat> it's the first time that the major, it was a naval battle, but none of the major ships ever even saw one another. Normally, you would have a battle where it's like, all right, there's the enemy, you know, battle cruiser, so-and-so, you know, uh, plot a course and start opening fire, and you start bombing the enemy ship. This one wasn't. This one was fought with planes from aircraft carriers, and this is a harbinger of things to come. Um, the other major part about it was that the Japanese lost... Um, uh, it, it, two different aircraft carriers, uh, one of the major ones. Now, the United States also lost uh, a major aircraft carrier, okay? But <clears throat> the Japanese, uh, they lost one, it was a light carrier, I think it was, actually. Uh, and they, they did hit the U.S., but the problem was that they, the Japanese, like I said before, even the loss of one aircraft carrier, they couldn't make it up. And that leads to... So, yes, the Japanese inflicted more casualties. But it's kind of like the Battle of Jutland. I know, I keep going back to Jutland. I'm just a, such, a, such a fan of the battle. I think part of it is just this bit that I taught a lesson about it when I was in 8th grade. So, you're going to have to just deal with me on this one. But the, the thing about the Battle of Jutland was, if you look at the numbers in Jutland, you would just look at the numbers. You would say, well, the Germans won the battle. Well, yeah, they did. Statistically, they did. But here's the question. Was the German high seas fleet able to break out into the Atlantic? No. Were they able to break the British blockade of Germany, which was slowly, by 1916, was starting the, you know, to strangle Germany, and by 1918 would result, really, more than almost anything else, in Germany being forced to surrender? No. No. So, you know, you, you, you may have won the battle, 
to losing the war. And that's the Coral Sea. It hurt Japan. Japan, as a result, was not able to put as many of their aircraft carriers in. And then we had, in June, we had, of course, the Battle of Midway. Midway was a tremendous, tremendous battle. Um, It pretty much decided the war in the Pacific. If you look at everything that happened after Midway, it's basically at that point just Japan fighting. Uh, They're doing a fighting retreat across the Pacific, island hopping. Uh, You know, the United States is just little by little taking this, taking that. Uh, And the U.S. goes from strength to strength, whereas Japan uh, can no longer replace anything that they've they've lost. They just don't have the ability. Uh, And this is, you know, again, that's the problem with waging war against a country that has tremendously more, uh, there's 16 times a greater economic capabilities. The U.S. could just do stuff uh, with more, many more people, many more supplies. Um, so Midway was an entertaining thing. The Japanese, again, got this idea. Okay, listen, we'll catch the U.S. fleet, which admittedly was still, we were still in recovery mode in the summer of 1942. We still did not have a huge fleet ready, but we did have something that the Japanese did not know. And that was essentially that we had broken their codes. Okay, We knew where they were going knew where they were coming and that was something that you know that that's a game changer so the u.s decides to take a gamble now midway is a a few inconsequential islands again historians love to come up with names it's like (laughs) what you know geographers really i'm not going to say historians geographers it's you guys cartographers you're to blame for this say well what should we call these islands that are midway across the pacific Let's call them the Midway Islands. Oh, yeah, that sounds like a good name for them. All right, Midway. So the U.S., the Japanese send a major fleet, and basically their goal is to draw out the Americans and, and crush them. It was in not too dissimilar way like what happened with Jutland. The idea in Jutland was, oh, we'll draw out part of the British high seat, the, the British Grand Fleet, and we'll destroy it. And, you know, we'll, 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 we'll catch them. And num- we don't have numbers overall, but if we can catch them, if we can catch two or three aircraft carriers, uh, then we can, you know, nail the Americans. Uh, you know, then, then that'll buy us some time to continue going, or, you know, about our way. So anyway, I'll give you the, the short version. There was a movie um, about Midway. It came out not too long ago. Um, it, was, it was a fairly good movie. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> the the Americans take a tremendous gamble. And it's one of those things where, you know, you just look at this and you're like, but what if this had happened and what if that had happened? And, and it's just like, yeah, well, you know, then it would have been a completely different story. But it wasn't. Uh, you know, the Americans come out, the Japanese come out, and the Americans, uh, you know, locate them, send a couple of dive bomber groups in, the Japanese shoot everything down, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a bad situation, the Americans are reeling, and they finally, and again, this is the Reader's Digest version, uh, I do encourage people to go and read up on this, 
But the Americans basically send kind of a last throw of, uh, of, of bombers out there, you know, of, of uh, naval bombers out there to hit the Japanese. And basically they catch the entire Japanese carrier fleet while it's <laughs> rearming uh, and refueling planes. And the American bombers make an absolute bloodbath of the situation. Um, the Japanese, you know, were absolutely crushed. They lost four aircraft carriers. This could never be replaced. Losing four carriers over the course of a year couldn't be replaced by the Japanese. In one battle, never be replaced. I mean, it was just that it caught them with their pants down and destroyed them. That was the end of the Japanese Pacific Fleet. Uh, after that, the Japanese really were never able to mount any offensives. They didn't have the carriers. They didn't have uh, the planes. Uh, it was all she wrote. There is a tale where a couple of Americans, the Japanese, picked up a couple of American boys who had to bail out after being shot down. And, I mean, these, these uh, dive bombers, Americans... They had to basically go in as they were facing a curtain of anti-aircraft fire and, and just, just hold, hold steady. You know, I mean, it, it, imagine that. It's just, it always blows my mind when you think about things. It's not war like today where you press a couple of buttons and you're firing things from drones. I mean, these guys had to be like, listen, we're, I'm going to do a dive on this aircraft carrier and I have to wait until I get to a certain point before I release my bomb. And they're just firing. It's like, yeah, there's probably a you know seven or eight out of ten chance I'm not going to make it, but the heck with it. Let's go. I mean, unbelievable the bravery of of some of these guys. Uh, you know, and the, and the Japanese lighten the sky up, but they they captured uh, two Americans out of the water, and after uh, giving them an inquiry, trying to find out what's going on, the Americans wouldn't talk. They basically tied, um, you know, large um, kerosene containers to their legs with chains and threw them off the side of the ships to sink into the Pacific uh, and die um, because of their anger at what happened. Um, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, the Pacific, unlike in Europe where... And, and by no means am I making any excuses that the, you know, the, the Nazis were anything other than, you know, uh, evil personified. But at least in, in Germany, there was kind of an understanding, like, you know, there would be negotiations, surrenders, you know, soldiers might be treated this or that way. Um, you know, for Japan, this was just a, a, an absolute war to the death. And when we talk in one of my next episodes, I'm not sure if it's going to be the next one or the one after, about the conclusion of the war in the Pacific, I think that'll be the last episode of the series. Um, you know, even after two atomic bombings, there were a lot of Japanese military who were like, yeah, so? Well, they only killed 150,000 people in two days. We'll just, we'll, we'll keep fighting. It's like, we don't have any more soldiers. So what? We'll arm the civilians. They can have pitchforks and knives will go down fighting and you know it is a very kind of that that mindset that a lot of people have about japan which i know it becomes very orientalist and westernized you know the samurai bushido type thing 
you know, it just comes down to, you know, a lot of these guys just viewed surrender as a, a tremendous dishonor and they were willing to fight to death. They had no problem with it. Uh, and they did. They did in, in so many cases, which we'll talk about. But Midway was an absolute disaster for the Japanese. And it was basically a turning point because, uh, you know, Midway took place halfway through uh, 1942. By the end of 1942, as we talked about before, the Germans in Stalingrad have been turned around. Uh, you know, the Soviets by 1943 are on the offensive. So 1943 becomes the year where the Allies take the advantage. Uh, they go on the initiative, and there will never be another major effort. It's not like World War One, where, you know, up until 1918, I mean, it's in the spring of 1918, in the summer of 1918, you know, Germany launched Operation Michael, which was a massive offensive against, uh, you know, the West, against the, you know, the, the French and British, and the Americans at the time. And they were they, you know, were, were gaining miles at a time of land. They broke the stalemate in the West. That didn't happen in World War II. It didn't happen at all. Um, a- after the middle of 1943, uh, the Germans never recovered the initiative on the Eastern Front. By 1944, the um, you know Allies have landed. Uh, in, by 1943 and 1944, have landed in Italy. They've mopped up North Africa, landed in Italy, the land in northern France in 1944. And it very quickly, it just, it, it's amazing where within two years, basically, you know, Germany goes from control of a huge part of Russia and Europe and being this absolutely juggernaut army um, to, you know, surrender. And with Japan, it kind of goes the same way. Um, you know, from what we call the very tail end of 1941, 1942, uh, you know, it goes from being dominant, but halfway through 42. You know, there's, a, there's a, an apocryphal story, I believe it is, where uh, um, <clears throat> Yamamoto says, you know, I, I will give you, you know, six months of victory. After that, I can't, I can't guarantee anything. And, uh, that, that's pretty much exactly what happened between Pearl Harbor and between Midway. You know, the Japanese had a run of things. After that, it was uh, it was kind of just a constant state of retreat. But we'll talk about that, and we'll talk about what happened in the West, how the United States dealt with things, uh, and also at the same time, by the way, that the United States was waging all-out war against Japan in the Pacific... The United States was also supplying the Soviet Union with tremendous amounts of, of food, uh, fuel, and, and weapons. In fact, Nikita Khrushchev later credited the United States as spam. And if you follow my Instagram account, you'll know that spam came out not too long ago. Well, it, it, well long ago, but date-wise. Uh, it was maybe two weeks ago that I put up about how spam came out. Uh, spam, you know, we, we provided... Millions and millions of, of tins of spam to the Soviets. It, it saved their troops. It gave them food. Um, the United States is also fighting in North Africa, then in Italy, uh, then in France, and into Germany. Uh, and we're doing all of that at the same time. We're supplying everyone, and we're also fighting essentially single-handed against the Japanese. Uh, 
Um, it is, and I say this not in a braggadocious sense, it is one of the greatest efforts of any warring nation in the history of the world. I don't think that anyone has done anything, any country, and again, feel free, please, contact me, email me, send me messages, DM me, whatever it is. No one's done what the United States did really between, uh, I'll say 39 and 45, we can even call it 41 and 45 if you want, but the bottom line is the United States not only supplied all of the allies, but the United States fought on multiple fronts. And just produced a ridiculous amount of things. And this would go on, the, the boom from the war would go on to create the 1950s in the United States, which was, uh, you know, one of the greatest periods of economic growth the United States has ever had. Um, in fact, you know, we have a whole term, the baby boomers, um, who are now all you know, getting a little up there in the, in the years, but... You know, we have that term for what happened after the war, the baby boomers. You know, they they were born after the soldiers came home. And as I've often said, my grandfather, um, you know, who's passed away since, but, you know, he fought across Europe. He fought through France, uh, the 95th, Um, you know, and and, uh, it's just, it's really, it is something else. I mean, it's the last time the United States was in this massive total war, you know, I mean... Um, which, this is not to say anything, this is no slight to Vietnam, by the way, mind you, uh, or Korea. Neither Vietnam nor Korea. Um, you know, it's just that World War II was just fought on such a massive scale and, and with so much at stake that uh, it really is, um, you know, I mean, had, had Germany managed to knock the Soviet Union out, had they turned around and managed to bomb Britain into submission... Um, the world would be a very different place. It would be a much worse place than it is now because Nazis are bad people. Um, but, you know, it just, it's just amazing how close, how close things came uh, in so many areas. And, I mean, we look at it now and we're like, well, this, of course, this would have never happened because of this. And we always knew the Soviets were going to do that. And we always knew the United States... Yeah, but you know what? We we didn't though. <laughs> we know now because we're looking back on it. And we're like, yeah, okay, whatever. You know, blah blah blah. We didn't know then, and and it could have turned out differently. You know, one or two decisions go bad, and that's that. You know, it it becomes a completely different ball game. War extends another couple of years. Things don't go down as well as we thought they were going to. So, I mean, that's the, that's the great thing about history. The thing I love about history more than anything else, it gives us this opportunity to discuss, what about this, what about that, and to analyze things. And, you know, and I love my, 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 my uh, brothers and sisters who teach mathematics. But the one thing about maths that always aggravated me was, was like, it was just so, it was like, nope, you're either right or you're wrong. There's no in-between. You can't be like, but what if 2 plus 2 equaled 5? What if the 2, what if 2 plus 3 and the 2 decided it was going... No, it didn't decide anything, you dope, okay? It was 2 and there was a 3. And you added them and it becomes 5. There's no debating anything. It was kind of of boring. I was like, oh, what's the fun of that, you know? At least world, you know, in, in history, I can sit down with a fellow historian and be like... But what if, you know, uh, 
the Germans had bypassed Stalingrad? What if the Japanese had not hit Pearl Harbor? What if this? What if that? What if, you know, you can debate this stuff. And I think that that's great fun because it, it gives us the opportunity to discuss potential outcomes and to discuss why humans make decisions that they do. What happens when we make certain decisions? Um, what are the outcomes of even seemingly minor decisions? I mean, for crying out loud, when we talk about D-Day, I'll tell you, you know, uh, I'll, I'll remind you, one of the major problems was that Hitler was sleeping and they didn't want to wake him up. Nobody wanted to wake him up to get the panzers, the tanks, released on the Allies. What if someone had been like, well, screw it. I don't care what the consequences are. I'm waking up uh, Hitler. And Hitler was like, oh, my God, let the tanks go out there. And, and, and all of a sudden, D-Day turns into a defeat for the Allies. You're talking about a completely different world. Completely different world. Okay? But didn't happen. Okay? He slept through it. That's why you don't take sleeping pills when you're in charge of a country. Anyway, um, so... That was basically our discussion about Japan, the Pacific, the United States. Um, now, I don't know exactly what I'm going to talk about next week. There are a couple of things coming up um, that I'm thinking about, but I'll, I'll probably try and do at least another World War II episode because I, I've gotten a lot of positive feedback from them and uh, people seem to like them, so I'll try the best I can to do it. And uh, in the meantime, like I said, if anyone has anything else they want to talk about, Send, you know, DMs to me uh, at Antonius Optimus uh, on Instagram. I put stuff up every single day there. Uh, and let me know what you want to hear about. Uh, let me know if you disagree with my opinions, you know. I always love it. I love it when students are like, Mr. A, what about this? What about that? I, you know, yeah, come on, bring it to me. You know, as long as you go do your homework, I never have any problem. I'll debate anything, you know. You know, it's, it's, that's the way it goes. So, in the meantime, I hope everyone is, please, please, be safe. Don't take any risks. Uh, please wear masks if you go out. Um, do support your local businesses. They need your help. Wherever you are in the world, trust me, your local businesses, even if you can't eat there, for example, take out food. Uh, I'm doing all I can over here you know, to help out local businesses because we have to keep them afloat so that once this horrible, horrible, stupid pandemic is over, we can finally, you know, they can get back onto their feet. You know, these are people's livelihoods and, and we need to do all we can to take care of everyone. That's what we're about. The world is a global village. That's it. And we are all our brother's keepers and we have to take care of that. So please be safe. Please take care of yourselves. Uh, like I said, anything you want to send, send me. And I will otherwise than that, I will be uh, talking to you guys uh, towards the end of the week again with another episode. Until then, take care, my friends. Bye-bye. <laughs>